This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at ICFF.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. You know, I went with a member of staff who insisted, she said, we'll go up to Manchester and we'll see the buying houses and see if they're buying, because I got a first-class honours degree. But we went up and they'd say, oh, um, we couldn't sell very much of this. You know, it, it, everything was considered too extreme. And then I don't know why it was that it, it, it the idea came to me that I should go direct to designers on Carnaby Street and see if they like the designs and where we go from there. Ah, so instead of going direct to manufacturers and having them sell it. I became the manufacturer. I'm Jamie. I'm Amy, and this is Clever. Today, we're talking to legendary fashion designer Xandra Rhodes. Born and raised in the UK, she's known for her pioneering use of printed textiles and fiercely feminine designs. She shot to fame in the early 70s as one of the new wave of British designers that put London at the forefront of the international fashion scene. Nicknamed the Princess of Punk for a famous collection involving rips, tears, and beaded safety pins, she's always been willing to make bold visual statements while exhibiting the kind of draping and high-quality hand craftsmanship that make her pieces iconic and worthy of museum 
permanent collections. Like for instance, the Met, Victoria and Albert, LACMA, and FIT. And speaking of museums, she founded the Fashion and Textile Museum in London. And speaking of bold visual statements, you can't miss her on the street with her bright pink hair, art jewelry, and theatrical makeup. She's a walking work of glamorous art herself. Over the course of her long career, she's dressed some of the most famous celebrities, musicians, and public figures, and she's been a big name in the fashion business for the better part of 50 years. She's got an amazing story to tell, so let's talk to Zandra. My name is Zandra Rhodes. I currently live three quarters of the time in Del Mar, California, but in fact, the company that I founded, which is my own name, Zandra Rhodes, is headquartered in London, and the California studio feeds the London studio. I had no idea you were in Del Mar. I am very close to you, actually. I'm in Poway. Oh, right. That's quite near, yes. <laughs> lovely. Lovely to know. And I'm really here because I met my partner, who at the time was the president of Warner Brothers, expanding Warner Brothers cinemas to all over the world. And he came through London, and I'd already met him at a dinner, and the rest is history. And that was about nearly 30 years ago. Oh. And then I've lived in Del Mar about 21 years, but I have a home. I have a home in London, and my headquarters of my company is in London, where we employ about, you know, probably nine permanent staff and flexibly between nine and probably 15. I would say I'm a, a designer specializing mainly in what I would call um, beautiful dresses and, and jackets. I trained as a textile designer, and when I couldn't sell my work when I first left college in 1963, I tried to get people to buy my work, and they thought it was too extreme. And following on from that, I showed my work to various designers on Carnaby Street, Fole and Tuffin, Sally Tuffin and Marion Fole, and they loved what I'd done and said, can you get it printed for us? So I started by being what's called a sort of converter. I went to the designers themselves, as I still hadn't thought of myself doing dresses, and I showed them the prints and they said, we'd love them, but how can we get them? And then I had to find a place to print them and make the deliveries and do everything like that. Wow. So we're going to deconstruct that whole process, but we like to start even earlier than that. Like we want to understand what you were like as a child. So can you talk to us about where you were born, what your hometown was like, what your family was like? I was born in a town called Chatham in Kent, England, which if you were going from London to Dover, Chatham is halfway, so it's sort of like toward getting on towards Europe. It's about an hour outside of London. My mother was a, a quite exotic lady who had worked in Paris um, as a fitter in the House of Worth and then wanted to go to America, but then the war broke out and she also met my father and they married, and I was born in 1940, which is in the middle of the Second World War. My father was a truck driver, 
So it was a fairly, I would say, fairly ordinary. I mean, I don't know. I would, I'd never thought of myself as extraordinary, but I mean, I, I have got an incredible work ethic, which is taken from my mother. So I've always found that you do something to the best of your ability. And if you can't be top, it's not worth doing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> and growing up, you said you never felt like extraordinary. Were you aware of your mother's work ethic? Oh, we were totally aware of my mother's work ethic and very aware. I was very studious. I thought that if I worked hard, it would get me somewhere. I loved painting and drawing and and was always sort of, I was always, without any effort, top in the art classes. So I enjoyed all of that. And I went, in the weekends, I went to Saturday art classes I went to art college and I thought that I would probably be an illustrator. And then gradually I was taught by this amazing dynamic woman who taught printed textiles and really went into doing printed textiles because of her, a woman called Barbara Brown. So teenage Sandra, were you uh, one of the artsy kids? Were you one of the, you know, goody two shoes? What were you like as a teenager? Were you filled with angst? <laughs> I didn't really want to go out very much. So I'd only go out in um, one evening a week to ballroom dancing classes, which in those days was how you met a boy. And then I would go out, say, on a maybe a Sunday afternoon or a, a Saturday evening. But that was my my limit I set myself the rest of the time I was at home I didn't really want to go out I enjoyed doing my work what about the artistic side of you were you also drawing painting doing anything else beyond just studying your schoolwork I would do sketching locally and in fact when I took my final exam at the colleges my sketchbooks were put in in on display and taken around the country as an example, in the weekend, I just put on clothes and go and sketch in the semi-countryside. Maybe I might be drawing chickens in an orchard one time, and then I might be drawing a church another. So I would just be always drawing at home, even then. Did you spend a lot of time alone? No. My parents were nearly always at home. My mm -hmm. father finished work, and then he'd probably be at home either mending his bicycle or pottering around at home and my mother would always be sewing and fitting ladies in her spare time when she wasn't teaching she'd have ladies round where she'd be fitting them for their wedding dresses and things mm. and if we were good we were allowed to sit in and watch oh that must have influenced you watching those fittings yes and we and there were always exotic french magazines around so Yes, there were all those sort of things happening. Hmm. I'm interested in your self-imposed disciplinary, you know, limits in terms of socializing. Was that because you're comfortable out in the countryside sketching on your own? Or were you afraid of getting, I don't know, roped into derelict behavior? Or what was that about? It's funny, you know, you think we must have just had protected lives in those sort of days. I mean... When I used to hand my homework in at school, there were the groups of children that would go, ah, she's done her homework. And my mother would say to me things like, well, sticks and stones will break your bones, but names will never hurt you. So I, 
I've always had a pretty thick skin and just thought that that's going to get me somewhere. I didn't particularly want to go out all the time. So you mentioned college. You studied at Medway College of Art and then Royal College of Art. Uh, and you, you talked already about focusing on printed textile design. Can you talk a little bit about those years? And when I, you mentioned a professor or a teacher who got you into textile design. The teacher at the first art college was called Barbara Brown. She was the one that got me into textile design. I know that some of the staff always used to be amazed at my work ethic. I mean, my mother was always sewing dresses at home to make extra money. So I came from a home where there was a work ethic and you didn't sit down. And also we didn't have a television until I was 17. So it couldn't be that anyone would sit and be watching doing nothing. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, it was a house where you couldn't sit. You had to do something. You know, my father, when we did get a TV, my, my father would be sitting mending his bicycle or something. You know, you didn't sit and do nothing. <laughs> right. No, that makes sense. Yeah. So the lots of industriousness at home. When you left to go to Royal College of Art, was that your first time away from home? Yes, that was the first time I lived away from home. And for the first probably half of the term, I wanted to go home. And then after I got used to it, I didn't wish to go home. <laughs> <laughs> was London brand new to you or had you been making frequent trips there as a child? Did it feel like the city was your playground or was it overwhelming? No, I mean, again, I had a bed sitter there so I could go into college and spend all my time. So it was only Sundays that I took off and then would go to museums and, and different things. So by the time you went to Royal College of Art and you're living away from home, was school just a means to get the tools for the craft under your belt? I suppose so. I mean, it was more of learning to design without someone guiding you all the time. And I found the Royal College very difficult because you weren't being taught the whole time. You were more grown up than that. You were to get on with it. And I found that that first couple of terms quite difficult from that point of view. And then at that time, I did furnishing fabrics and I wasn't a quick designer and I'd look around the room that we were working in and there were other people that could design far more quickly than I could. It used to make me feel, oh gosh, I can't design that quickly. And then it was in my second year that I suddenly realized that probably from the influence of my mother in the sense that she always had dresses on dress stands and textile books around that I wanted to do fabrics that weren't for curtains or wallpapers, but were for dress fabrics that people could wear. Mm. And I found that very exciting because at the time I was doing it, there were people who were all into furnishing fabrics and dramatic wallpapers. This is the sort of like the early 60s. So I was probably the first in a new group that was interested in how fabrics looked on dresses and what they were going to look like. After you graduated and you transitioned into being a professional, you said your designs were too extreme to go the traditional route and you kind of had to forge your own path. Can you tell us how that shaped out? Well, I mean, it, I hadn't thought that I was forging my own path. I just sort of got on with designs and went into work every day and I was always the first one in. I mean, I didn't think anything of it. I think I was born with quite a thick skin in the fact that I'm work driven and I love I'm lucky that I love my work. 
So I would get on with my work regardless of things going on around me. How did you discover that your designs were too extreme or too outrageous? Did you have to endure some rejection? Oh, well, yes, because, you know, I went with a member of staff who insisted. She said, we'll go up to Manchester and we'll see the buying houses and see if they're buying. Because I got a first class honours degree. But we went up and they'd say, oh, um, we couldn't sell very much of this. You know, it, but everything was considered too extreme. And then I don't know why it was that it, it the idea came to me that I should go direct to designers on Carnaby Street and see if they like the designs and where we go from there. Ah, so instead of going direct to manufacturers and having them sell it. I became the manufacturer. Mm. There you go. And then that went all right for about two years. And then I started to do designs with lipsticks and light bulbs and things. And they said, we only want, you know, fashion changed and it wanted stripes and things like that. Whereas the funny thing is now it's the lipsticks that Valentino wanted <laughs> of my collection. So when did you feel like your career started to take off? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, the fact that I then got some work there and then I taught two days a week to make the money to live. But I hadn't calculated for the fact that I hated teaching so much. And why was that? I didn't want to teach. I wanted to be doing my own work, you know. And so I did that until and then one day you know I, i'd met these amazing ukrainian models oksana and miroslava pristav who were photographed in my clothes on the cover of english vogue Ooh! at that point was it when you felt like things were taking off for you these two models said to me, Sandra, you'll make your fortune in america you've got to go to america and so i um i had I didn't know anyone in America, but I'd met an American interior decorator, Richard Holly, and he was going back to America for a month. And he said, come and you can stay in my place. And then I got together letters of introduction to American Vogue and Women's Wear Daily. And I visited them both. And American Vogue, Deanna Vreeland, this is 1969, raved about what I had and immediately got them photographed on Natalie Wood. Oh, and gave me the contact to go and sell at Henry Bendel. And that was the same time that Calvin Klein made his first six coats. And then Women's Wear Daily ran an article about me. And then after that, I'd come to America every six months, come and get orders and sell my things. And I kept doing that until really probably the mid-90s. So, and at some point, according to my research, it was circa 1977, you introduced this very famous collection that's characterized by a lot of tears and beaded safety pins and earned you the nickname the Princess of Punk. I mean, I think this was going on on street level and couture level. Although, mm -hmm. by the way, Susie Menkes, who at that time was writing for the Herald Tribune 10 years later, Versace did his famous uh, Hurley, you know, the Elizabeth Hurley dress. Mm -hmm. And she pointed out that Zandra Rhodes had done it 10 years earlier because it was memorized <laughs> in my book. And she was banned from his show for um, two seasons. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, I'd been doing printed textiles and I had a shop and, and everything and had all these exotic dresses. And suddenly I thought, 
life's changing and let's do something with holes and beaded safety pins. And we, my partner, who was a, when I say an older lady, she was probably much younger than me now, but she was older than me then. <laughs> and she said, well, look, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it with conviction. So mm. we did these wonderful drapes in the middle of the shop, which were all pink trees with beaded safety pins and everything like that. And we put the things in the window and it completely flopped and no one came into the shop and no one bought anything. So we moved everything out and went back to the printed dresses again. <laughs> but now when Harold Coder retired from the uh, Met, the one dress he wanted in the Met's collection was my punk wedding dress. That's a nice honor to be included in museum permanent collections. When did that start happening for you? Oh, my very first dress from quilted dress from 1969. There's one in the Victorian Elba and there's another one in the Met. I don't know how many pieces. I know they've got probably about 10 pieces. And I know that the FIT down the road has got at least that many pieces. And so has the Los Angeles County Museum. Wow, that's quite a resume. <laughs> so speaking of museums, you co-founded the Fashion and Textile Museum I in London. I didn't co-founded it. I founded it. You founded it by yourself. My great friend, Andrew Logan, who lived in this rather dilapidated area of London. And there was a big, quite well-built brick warehouse. And he passed it and he said, you know, Zander, you've wanted to do a museum. Why don't you buy that building? And I said, what do you think I am, made of money? <laughs> and then the more I thought about it, I had a house in Notting Hill, which I'd bought in the early 70s when Notting Hill was nowhere. And it had what you call sitting tenants, which means people live in it that you can't get rid of unless you pay them money. So I had this house and I ran part of my business from there. Then I had a studio along the road where I'd downsized some of my business and but I still work there and I had a factory that I couldn't develop to live in and I worked out that if I got rid of all of those and consolidated everything under one roof I could afford it so I bought the building by selling my house in Notting Hill Gate and within two months it, I couldn't even have afforded to buy the area now it's a very chic area but it wasn't when I bought it and what was behind your, your desire to start a museum? I felt that at the time, people weren't taking any notice of my work. And if they weren't taking any notice of my work, then I saved it so that at some point, at least it would be of use historically, because I believed in it myself. <laughs> I love that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On Tools and Weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. 
Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. I'd love to know more about designing for specific types of people. You've designed for some operas. Is there a difference between designing for the theater and then designing for just the, you know, the consumer? Gosh. Well, if you design for opera, it only has to be practical enough to put on. It doesn't have to have hanger appeal. (laughs) Whereas if you're designing for things in shops, it's got to have a certain amount of hanger appeal. The thing oh. about opera is I can rely, it does again take make use of my talents as a printed textile designer so that you can disguise any fabric and make it fit to what you want it to be. Do you feel like designing for the theatre gives you a lot more freedom of creativity? I don't really know. I mean, each thing's got its own setbacks where mm. and each thing has got things that are fun to do. Like I love having this great big size 18 opera singer who really was once a size 12 and would, or, or maybe even a 10, and you have to try and make her look like she wants to feel on the stage. Uh, so I like all those aspects as well. There's a restriction in theater because you have to design for one specific person and that person represents, you know, a character, right? Or a time period. Whereas for the general public, you're designing you know, for the masses. So you kind of have to appeal to lots of people. Like you said, it has to have hanger appeal. It has some hanger appeal, but the lately what's been very interested is I've been working with maxisfashion.com where we've been recreating my dresses that I did in the 70s for Princess Diana and um, Pat Cleveland and various personalities. And we've been putting those out and people have been loving them. So we've been recreating my historical fashion. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> How does that feel? That's like your greatest hits. It's lovely. It is quite lovely, yes. And that was really through my staff who looked at it and felt that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's smart. Well, it also makes it more accessible to, you know, everybody. So, you know, if you can't get your hands on something that's vintage, if you're recreating some of the designs, it's it's kind of cool to be able to access those things. Yes, to recreate, work mm-hmm. out how to recreate the vintage and give it a modern coloring or something. Mm-hmm. So speaking of your creative process, your specialty is printed textiles, but you also kind of pioneered this way of working where you you print the textiles specifically for the garment panel. In other words, you design the dress and then reverse engineer how the illustration is going to look on the dress. And that's different than a lot of people were doing. We're just doing bolts of fabric and then, you know, cutting patterns from those. Yes. I mean, I suppose that's what really set my work aside I mean and that again I don't want to say it's by accident but you know you start trying things out and I put pieces of paper on front of me and try and work out how it's going to look and I think that's why it has worked so well translated into the theater as well you know into the world of opera I've heard you describe in a video I watched that you think of your garments as sort of individual artworks, living artworks. And I agree with that because they're so composed. 
you've given thought to where the illustrations or where the drawings or the prints are going to land, how they're going to flow, how everything's going to sort of work around the human body. What does that look like on a practical level in your studio? Is it cutting paper and drawing and pinning things together? When I'm first of all starting off, I'd probably cut a hole in the piece of paper that I'm designing and put it on my head and look at myself in the mirror (laughs) and see how that works. But then later, when you've calculated and you think you've covered all odds, you could print the fabric and again, you would probably, you know, put it on a stand and see what it does. And you can get a lovely circle will give you a sort of different kind of frilled sleeve. You know, you don't know until you're actually working on it. Some of it's still hit and miss. There's no guarantee in this business. I mean, I'm like a tightrope walker. I can fall off any time. Oh, please don't. (laughs) I want to ask you about new technologies and modern fashion, because like you mentioned before, you were creating some of your vintage dresses and modernizing them with new color palettes. But what's your take on handmade versus digital? Because there's so many new technologies and so much modernism happening, you know, at this moment. Well, it was funny because I was up in South Coast Plaza because I'd been asked to do an exhibition up there and I was looking at different things and we were looking at sheets that have been done. I mean, I I find I don't like digital to me. I don't know. It uh, it doesn't have the same quality. It doesn't go through the cloth in the same way. But I mean, it, it might mean that in the end, everything would die and digital will survive. I don't know. Do you personally still work mostly in the handmade analog world? Yes. Mm. When I first... Um, built the museum I looked at the work by Ricardo Ligaretta the wonderfully colorful Mexican architect and I thought he's just right for the job I want and I flew him over first class on my American mileage and said would you be interested in designing this museum and I knew that he could do a colorful job He was building the museum and he wanted me to have little windows showing my print room. And I said, no one wants to see the print room. Whereas now the museum keeps saying to me, because it's run as a bit, my business is one side and the museum's the other. They say, whatever happens, we've got to keep that going as an art form. And if we can, we'd like to see if it can in the end develop that we do sometimes printing classes you know, for people who are interested, even if it's only an art form that we're keeping alive. Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that sort of troubles my conscience is the dying of certain crafts and art forms. And I don't think that digital can replace all of that stuff. Sure, it can automate things and make it, you know, a little easier to replicate and faster. But there are certain techniques that, I don't know, are just going to become obsolete. And I think we lose something as a culture when they just completely disappear. I hope it won't become obsolete. You know what I mean? Digital makes it easy uh, Mm -hmm. and things can be knocked out and they can be copied easily without the same originality that goes into things, which is a bit sad. I think one of the things that's so appealing to me about your textiles is the hand-drawn quality that they deliver. The hand of the illustrator is very apparent in, in the textiles, and I think that's a luxury that's... That's something that feels like it has a soul. Yes. Well, we hope so. (laughs) You're a creative, but you're also an entrepreneur. 
and running a business for so many years, I'm sure you've had ups and downs. Has there ever been any time when you've had overwhelming challenges or got caught up in doubt or, or bogged down by just the admin that a business takes? The admin can bog you down, yes. And you just have to hope that you survive through it. <laughs> <laughs> Where does your undying energy come from? Well, I can't think of anything else I want to do. <laughs> Good answer. You know, like you could, yeah, what do, I, what do I want to do? Do I want to retire? What would I do if I retired? Would I have to go and see my friends who were then we all busy and say, I haven't got any time? Or <laughs> I would like to do a bit more traveling. I think that would be lovely. And I haven't traveled for a while because my partner really I mean, the only travel I do is to get on a plane and go to London, sometimes diverting through New York because I do a line of furs in New York. And I opened the jewelry exhibition for uh, MAD, the Museum of Art and Design. So I did all of that. You've got a long and illustrious career under your belt already and a diverse body of work because, as we know, you do textiles and fashion, but also accessories and jewelry and opera costumes and probably many other things. I mean, I, I adore doing opera and I'm in the middle, you know, where I've been working on Turandot for San Diego Opera and hoping that we can really raise enough money to do that as an original production. Because I do love San Diego and I think it's it's a perfectly wonderful art form that really I was introduced to because of San Diego Opera. I have a question about San Diego, just total random question. The fashion world, in at least in the United States, always feels like it's very New York based and New York centric. How did you end up in Southern California and why are you there and why do you stay there? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> My partner decided that he wanted to retire to live by the sea in Del Mar. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so I go to New York if I have to do things. I get a certain amount of concentration. I'm very lucky that a girl who worked with Chetna Bat worked with me in, um, in India when I did a sari show and happened to end up down here as well. I don't mean you can be totally divorced, but we're near enough to attend to different things and do different things. I guess in the, in the digital age, it's easier because of email and things like, like Skype, which we're using right now, like technological advances to make, it makes the world smaller. So if you don't have to have a personal appearance, you can always connect digitally and get the work done. I've been able to do that. It might have been easier somewhere else. I'm not sure. I, I mean, this is how it is. And I just get on with it. But on the other hand, as I say, I wouldn't have got into opera if I hadn't have been here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, different opportunities present themselves in different ways. Well, I love it here. So <laughs> I know why you're here, too. <laughs> But I mean, I haven't been in the sea. Wait for this for name dropping. I haven't been in the sea for at least three years. And I went in when Bert Bacharach was next door to us and he took his children in boogie boarding. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I look at the sea and then I take a walk there and then I've got various funny hobbies like looking at all the flowers in Torrey Pines, which I'm doing a, a book on the flower fairies of Torrey Pines which I think would be a nice children's book if I ever get it together. Torrey Pines is a magical place. It's very magical and the flowers are very small and it's to really educate children to see how wonderful the flowers are. 
I don't know if I can top talking about Burt Backrack, but you know, <laughs> speaking of famous people, your work has been worn by lots of, of fashionable celebrities and important people like Princess Di, Freddie Mercury, Jackie O, Bianca Jagger. I mean, that that's just a small amount of people. But one of the things that I think is really interesting about celebrities and the fashion world in general is that a lot of times celebrities are almost used as like a vehicle to sell a particular product to the public. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about that, because I just think it's fascinating. Thing is, you've got people looking at all these people and wanting to be them, haven't you? Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who's considered a really wonderful personality around, like, I don't know, I don't dress her, but Beyonce, you've got a whole group of people that want to look like that. The way life goes is people look at other people. They don't always want to be different, do they? No. Although, I mean, I look around and I think, well, I've had color pink hair since 1980, and now I look around and there's all these people with colored hair walking around, you know. <laughs> I mean, something you believe in comes around in the end if you believe in it enough. <laughs> I think when we look at celebrities, whether they're actually on camera in a film or on the stage like Freddie Mercury or something or whether we see an image of them in a magazine and it's just them living their lives it's still theater and your work itself is kind of theatrical especially obviously the opera costumes but the fashion itself is is it's statement fashion you don't make basics no so... I don't make basics <laughs> <laughs> But there are other people, there are plenty of people that are happy with basics. So, you know. Yeah, but I mean. As I, long as I don't have to yes. tie along with them. <laughs> that's, that's not your game. I do like to think that in a way celebrities are translating. They're carrying the theater out into the regular world. And by wearing your garments, they're sort of adding a little bit of flamboyance or theater and they're getting themselves known at the same time they're getting your work known. And it's a way of exhibiting your work to the general public and they might not see it in a museum. And so I really think that whole dynamic is really interesting. But you mentioned it yourself. You've had pink hair since 1980. So let's talk about your own personal expression, because you yourself are, are quite a walking work of art. And you said you've never thought of yourself as extraordinary, and yet you present yourself in a very extraordinary way. So I wonder if you can talk to us about what's behind that. Gosh, I mean, I just like to put on things and feel happy and try and make myself feel great and put my makeup on I never go out without makeup and I don't take it off at night <laughs> is, that, is that because it's your own personal costume or is it a self-consciousness or what is it I think it's my own personal costume I mean I don't feel me if I'm not made up today I'm in jeans and a printed t-shirt but my jewelry on do you know what I mean mm -hmm. that makes me feel disguised but I don't like to I wouldn't want to work in one of my chiffon dresses and then find that I walk around the corner of a design table spill something on it and ruin it and then I'm thinking well that's all that talent gone yeah <laughs> I am interested though in in being someone who you know with pink hair is not going to fly under the radar have you ever I think I know the answer to this question, but just humor me. Have you ever felt like any kind of need to seek acceptance or approval from society in any way? 
because you, you're pretty rebellious in your designs, but also in your own personal look. But have you ever thought about I other people? I don't really people? think about it. As long yeah. as I turn myself out to look all right, that's what supports me. And if I go out looking like nothing, then I'm not, I haven't built up my personality. Does that make sense? Yes, it does make sense. And it makes me want to put a little more effort in. <laughs> <laughs> I ought what? to experiment a bit more. I mean, I don't, sometimes I'm so busy that I don't end up experimenting enough. I love that you call it experimenting. You know, I think, should I give myself a different eyebrow? Give it a bit of thought. I haven't thought about that recently. Well, what I what I like, though, is you're thinking about it for yourself. You're not thinking, oh, well, you know, what's really popular right now is to wear your eyebrows like this. You know, you're just thinking what's going to make me happy and what can I try that's new and exciting or, or, you know, would be experimental for me. Yes, it wouldn't be following on. It would be I'd be trying it out. Well, it's a lot of young designers and artists, you know, when they're first starting out are understandably driven by a need to prove something to others or to themselves. It doesn't sound like you ever really concerned yourself with that so much. But can you talk about your drive and how it's evolved over the course of your career? Well, I just, what should I say? I get up and I just start work and I try and fit in the designing. And often there's all the other things like I still don't type very quickly. So I usually scribble out all my emails in longhand and give it to my secretary to do. Are the things that were important to you 20 years ago still the main things that are important to you now? Oh, that's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah, I told you we were going to get deep, Sandra. <laughs> You know, I mean, I mean, my mother had several rather wonderful mottos, which one of them was, be careful who you step on going up because you might have to lean on them coming down. Is That's that fantastic. <laughs> so I try not to step on too many people. Tell us another one of your mom's mottos, because that one kind of just blew my mind. Good, better, best. Never let it rest till your good is better and your better best. Wow, that does describe you to a T, I think. <laughs> Gosh, let me try and think. Like, never go out without your makeup on. That's definite. That's a complete definite. And, I mean, I think your head and your face, you know, are what you look at so that it is true you wouldn't want a bad hair day. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything you, you feel like you had to learn the hard way? I'm sure... Almost everything you learn the hard way, you just find that when time goes by, you don't remember the stepping stones. You've gone over them. You don't remember the horrible things. Your mind blots them out so that you only remember the good things. I'm sure. Mm. Yeah, it's true. The, the, the struggle of learning is frequently sort of smoothed over by the joy of accomplishment or yes. the joy of getting to yes. a new spot. Do you have any children? No, I haven't got any children. I don't regret it. I think that often the people that have come along, that I've coaxed along, become one's sort of children. You know, you've got people that you've guided that stay in touch. Yeah. They're that become part of your life. Yeah, you've got you've got several children that are not biological. Yes, they're not biological. They're people that you might have helped their career who you've helped them somehow. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about legacy. 
because your fashion is under your name, but there's only one of you. Do you have any idea about, I mean, obviously your legacy will live on in all of the pieces that you have out in the world, but are you planning for more of that? Like, is there anybody who's going to be taking over Xander Rhodes? I hope the people in my operation, I'm trying to formulate all of that so that it will keep going and that um, that the probably the top of the museum will become rather like you think of Frida Kahlo's home, mm. that, that my rainbow penthouse will be part of the museum itself in the end and that the print legacy will keep going. Gosh, mm. you're making me think far too deep, you know. I oh, just stagger so- <laughs> on from day to day. I, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, different things crop up and I think I must get that book done or I must do this. I mean, I'd love to do another book about my work, but I've got to find this time and space to negotiate with someone who might be interested in in doing it, if you know what I mean. And that's all finding the space in between other things. You recently did a collaboration with Valentino. Do you have um, any insight or do you want to talk at all about how that came about? Pierre Paolo, it was his first collection on his own. And we got a call from the Valentino office that he would like to come and see me for doing prints for him. And I was really honored. And we opened up the whole setup and had him come around to look at everything. It was quite wonderful. It does seem like a kind of a rare collaboration in terms of your career. You typically do prints for your own work. Ah, oh, but Valentino is Valentino, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that must have been so exciting. So that was exciting. And we opened it up and he went back through all my different archives. And now on the web, there's a picture of um, him. Apart from my Instagram, which shows some of the things of people printing. You know, you've also got, you know, he I was his inspiration for that collection. And it was quite wonderful. That is great. And we will definitely include links to all of that in our show notes so that our listeners can get a look at that. Oh, lovely. Well, at the moment, we're, you know, we might be displaying those fabrics at South Coast Plaza. So we're just in the middle of talking about doing some of that. Oh, it'd be so fun to see those in person. Well, Zandra, you don't seem like the type who will ever retire. I mean, I know your personal and professional lives are are very intertwined, but is there anything that you have left to accomplish in this lifetime to make you feel like a complete human? Gosh. Well, I used to have a shop in the 80s and early 90s and maybe to do another shop at the front of the museum that will be just for my clothes because we do run a salon for people to come in and see me. I don't intend to leave San Diego as well. Well, La Jolla, wherever I'm in Del Mar. But I love this area as well, so it's a second home for me. So I've got a wonderful set of clients and I do a whole lot of things here. I don't really have time to think about what I'm going to be doing. So you're making me think far too much. (laughs) And I want to do another book about my work and re-bring out my, um, I mean, we've got a traveling exhibition, um, Sandra Rhodes, A Lifelong Love Affair with Textiles, which we'll update. Um, so there's a million different things, I mean, that could still present themselves and I might still be able to do. Well, thank you so much for taking this time to talk to us about your experiences and 
your work ethic is very inspiring. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Gosh, it's just lovely talking to you. Do you have a, a website or social media that you want our listeners to know about where we can follow your work? Well, I have um, an Instagram. I have my own website, which is www.zandaroads.com. Thank you again for sharing your life story with us. And yes, your, your work ethic, as Jamie said, is better. Wait, how does it go? Better? Good, better, best. Never let it rest till your good is better and your better best. <laughs> I'm going to remember that. Lovely. She is just delightful. Yes. And she is like a one woman powerhouse. <laughs> you know, what's so fascinating to me is she's such a rebel, but she seems absolutely unconcerned with rebellion. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's weird. Like, you know, when you see kids like teenagers and you know, they're just super angsty mm -hmm. and they're just like doing all these things to get all of it out or trying to find a way to express themselves. I don't think that's her. I think like it's just in like, that's just who she is. I mean, she said she doesn't even think about it. Exactly. I don't think she ever has. Like I always, you know, and maybe this is this is a, a lot of the ways that other people prejudge her, too. But when someone expresses themselves that boldly, a lot of times you think like they're trying to defy what people's expectations would be or they're trying to not get put in a box or be stereotyped. But she just doesn't give a F <laughs> about any of that. It is all just her expressing herself, being who she is and doing what she wants to do. And I don't think she's ever cared about what anybody thinks. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to me because I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like her. No, no, she fascinates me to no end. And and also the fact that she's never lost or become jaded or in any way disenchanted with printed textiles or with the fashion industry. Yeah. I mean, that is a really, really hard industry with a lot of people who are difficult to deal with. And it's just like you know, runs off her back, like whatever. She mentioned having a thick skin, which I also find really interesting because she doesn't seem insensitive or unkind in any way, which having a thick skin doesn't mean that you are. I'm not equating the two. Right. But, it, you know, she doesn't have that like, well, fuck you. I'll show you attitude. Right. None of that. And also sometimes people are artificially bold or brash because they they want to power their way through a certain situation. And I don't think she's ever been that way either. She just, I guess, doesn't let things bother her. I know. I need to know where it comes from because she needs to bottle it up and sell it. I know. Xandra's secret sauce. I yeah. would buy that. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I really like about her, well, first of all, she's got, she's like the OG of pink hair because mm -hmm. everybody, she's like, everybody these days has pink, colorful hair, you know, but she's had it since the 80s. Um, and she's never changed it. Like when she see, I guess she sees it around on other people and she's still kind of like, I'm just going to keep it because I like it. Like, even though now it's trendy, you know what I mean? Yeah, because she in many ways like did it before it even had any sort of she didn't. I don't even know if she even started the trend. She just did it when it wasn't being done. But she doesn't feel like it's not hers anymore when all of a sudden everybody starts doing it. Mm -hmm. She's she is such a unique individual. And we didn't talk about her love story enough because 
Oh, there's a love story? Well, that's how she ended up in San Diego. Well, she just talked about her partner, but I I didn't know there was like a story there. Well, she's from London. She met this guy at a dinner. Next thing you know, she's living by the sea in San Diego. There's got to be a love story in there. He's got to be quite a dude. Right? That's what I'm thinking, because she doesn't compromise or change for anyone. Yeah, but not only that, like I said, like if you're going to be in fashion, you've got only a couple of cities in the world that you should really be headquartered in. How cute is it that she writes her emails out in longhand? I do love that, like, she's eternally modern and yet also very analog in many ways. Well, I respect the fact that she doesn't want handmade textiles to die. Right. Um, There is a a craft there that she really believes is is incredibly important. And I think anybody who makes things would agree that using your hands to make something just gives it more of value and more individuality, more uniqueness and more soul. I don't know Mm -hmm. the better word to use than soul, but I do think you imbue more of yourself in something that's handmade and you just can't do that digitally you just can't that has a machine soul the one thing that she said that struck a chord about the handmade process was that the digital process replicates Mm -hmm. and then I thought about the handmade process and thinking about even if you screen print like and use a stencil or a pattern or something that you've already pre-made it still isn't going to be exactly the same as the previous thing you just screen printed with the same screen and the same paint color. They're mm-hmm. all going to be just a tad unique. And I love that about the handmade process. And I think it is something we really do lose um, with with the digital and technological revolution that we're going through right now. I have a Zandra Rhodes scarf that is hand printed and hand beaded that she gave me when I met her when we we shot that TV show together. And I love it so much. And you're right about the handmade process. There is no other way to tell a story, I don't think, with as much humanity than to make something by hand. I agree. Let's close this, Jamie, with you and I both imagining Xandra Rhodes frolicking in the sea with Burt Bacharach. (laughs) It's the the most joyful thing to enter my brain in a long time. I I think we should just stop on that note and just leave everybody thinking about that. Okay, let's do it. Hey guys, thanks for listening. We have a favor to ask. If you enjoy Clever, would you leave us a review on iTunes? It really helps us get the word out about these amazing designers that we've been talking to. Also, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Zandra's work. And connect with us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. We're at Clever Podcast on all three of those. We love hearing from you guys. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modell of your studio with music by L1011. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.